Amen. You can grab a seat. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Thrilled to have you all here. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. If not, we'd love to gift you with a, a Bible on your way out in a modern English translation. I'm going to begin by saying uh, that I wrote this sermon uh, very carefully, which, I mean, I always do that, but um, I wrote it word for word. And so I'm going to actually read my sermon to you today. It's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to ask for your grace in that. Um, but I, I feel it's important. Uh, so let me start by day, today by uh, clearing up some confusion. I identify as a white man. I know that comes as a shock because I'm so ethnically ambiguous. Uh, you've wondered with my complexion if I could possibly be uh, Northern European or maybe Northern Central European. But let me just say that I am a white man. And as such, uh, the past couple of weeks has helped me to continue to do to realize I need much more to do. What I'm going to ask you to do, which is to passionately pursue reconciliation with awareness. As an individual, um, I'm by definition just given two eyes to see the world through. As a white individual, I experience the world differently from others. It's the only experience that I can have. As a male individual, I get a different experience from a female, but again, that's the only experience I can have. This means, though, that I'm missing a lot. Any experience that's common to everyone, of course, I can feel and enjoy or dislike, but things that are specific, I can't experience things that aren't common to everyone. I can't experience things that are only felt by people who are black because I'm not black. I can't experience things that are only felt by people who are Hispanic or female because I'm not those things. So I'm, I'm stating something obvious, but I'm going to build towards something I think that's more important. Please stay with me. God has created all things, and by his active decision, he has designed all things to be as they are. The fall has twisted that all up, but the scriptures have given us the original design in the beginning, that God made us fundamentally separate from him and even separate from each other in the original pair being male and female. Though we are be, to be fundamentally united both to him and as one flesh to each other. Now we're going to step into some of the mystic dance of the Trinity where fundamentally God is both the same and different. One in substance, three in person. We're never going to understand God's view or his experience. Those can only be his. And yet we are commanded, invited to connect to him, to share his experiences, to laugh and talk and weep with him over things that we experience, see together. So there is a way to bridge the gap that God has designed between himself and us and between us and each other. And we call that way love. It's the ability to jump over that gap through talking and imagining what it's like for the other person. We can experience two things at once. We can have both our experience and theirs. We can enjoy together and multiply the joy. We can mourn together and somehow divvy up the grief. But it's essential to admit that to some degree, even though not perfectly, we can understand each other. We can love each other. 
Last week and again this morning, David read what I think are poignant verses for us to understand and consider. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the beginning of the Bible, you have two people with fundamental differences who are yet fascinated and passionately in love with each other. You have people who are fundamentally different from God, yet they are spellbound by His grandeur and basking in His presence, seeking to understand and enjoy Him forever. Then you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, and it opens the grand goal of all Scripture, which is people who are different from each other in language, culture, nation. Nation being the word that we use for ethnicity in the original languages. Brown, black, lily white, and everything in between, with languages from the Orient to the Occident, cultures from the Stoic to the Silly. And many will make up this list You make any list you want, and there will be many people on both ends of your list and all the middles. And as other as they are, these people are also shown with the same robes, the same posture, the same position, with the same view, the same proximity to the throne of God and to the Lamb, holding the same very particular object, crying out at the same volume, the same Words, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Same and different. Real differences, but real and deeper similarities. Differences which come from the beginning are still there. Similarities which come from the beginning are are still there and are still greater. If time permitted, we could walk through each of these symbols more deeply, but very quickly. Though they speak many languages, they're saying one thing. Though they represent every culture, they're all wearing the very same specific garment. Though the appearance of each is different, they, without stratification, are all mixed before the throne, gazing and worshiping the same Lord. They declare at full volume the same praise because they have been washed in the same salvation, which was necessary because they were all under the same curse, alike and unalike, but more alike, alike in deeper things. Alike and unalike at the beginning of time, alike and unalike, but more alike at the end or at the big beginning of the real show in Revelation. So let's talk uh, now, though, about the giant, broken, miserable middle. God wants us to be individuals, truly separate from one another, who by love cling to one another while gazing at him. Free and love-saturated, they are individuals together. But the enemy has a very different plan that we have fallen into or, more accurately, jumped into. He wants individuals who seek for a unity the way a snake unifies with a rabbit. The two become one flesh as the snake swallows the prey. We declare our individuality as supreme by putting others under us and looking around, seeking whom we can devour. 
In your mind exists a constant running commentary as you interact with others, comparing and contrasting. More pretty, not as pretty. He's an idiot, definitely smarter than him, but maybe not him. And then I'm really going to get there. If I can only get really good at this, then they'll all see. Or I'll never get there. I may as well watch more uh, Netflix. The competition is still there whether you're succeeding or failing. And you can see how that would lead to a world on fire or the world we have. We have a world where you eat me or I eat you. My experiences trump your experiences or your experiences trump mine. You will serve me or I will serve you, but there's nothing in between or above. Serve me or I will burn you with the fiery torch of the looter or the fiery cross of the lyncher. It doesn't always get to those extremes, and you're nicer than a lot of those people, but you're still not in Genesis or Revelation. You're still in the miserable middle, and to some degree, you are still enduring this fight until you find God's love, or more accurately, until His love finds you. I said love is the reaching across of one individual to another, not with the teeth of the predator, but with the hand of the loving friend. In this great, miserable middle, God has reached down, reached into our experience, not just as our experience of being human, though he did do that. He even reached across into our experience of sin. He didn't sin, but... He experienced the consequences of sin. He was isolated, hated, and cursed. He was mistrusted by authority until he was whipped across his back and lynched on a tree. Why? Love. Specifically, one power of love. Reconciliation. So, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. It's a lengthy passage, but I'm going to read it. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, (laughs) who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that is a lot, but here's some of what it's saying. God has reached across the divide that we have made and died in order to reconcile us to himself. 
we who have been reconciled have died with him, been raised to live for him. And the old snake way of eating or being eaten is done away with. The old has gone and the new has come. The sin we've committed against God, the sins we commit daily against each other, can be overcome and can be reconciled. We can be reconciled. We have to reconcile. When God pulls us to himself, we now work in the family business of reconciliation. It's now our daily duty and delight to find others, become aware of our differences, to love across those differences, and then reconcile them to God and us to them. We're watching our world seem to tear itself apart, and really, it is. That's what happens in the miserable, stinking, vicious middle between Genesis and Revelation. The world doesn't have the equipment for real love, real reconciliation, real change, because it can't really love until it's been united to the power of God's love. And yet, the gospel gives us the only real equipment for forgiveness. The gospel gives to us the only real equipment for lament and humility. The gospel gives to us the only real equipment for unity Quickly, forgiveness. It's only those who can say both right and wrong exist who can forgive. It's only those who say what right and wrong are who can forgive. It's only those who still trust to real justice who can forgive. It's only those who have been forgiven who can forgive. Of course, the culture can't figure this out on its own. It's a It's a big thing that only comes through God, through his church. And in his church, it's our DNA. In 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof sat in on a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. When they bowed down to pray, he started shooting. And he killed nine people and he injured three more. Two Days later, at the bond hearing, family members of the victims came before the court and one after another, through heavy emotion and deep tears, they said, I forgive you. And then the next one, I forgive you. And then the next one, I forgive you. A lawyer for one of the families said, that's genuinely who these people are. It's in their DNA. And for those of us who don't have that same faith, it's hard to imagine, but it's ingrained in them. Forgiven ourselves, the church has the DNA of forgiveness. If we're going to move forward, forgiveness has to be a possibility. I can never really expect that forgiveness from peoples whom I have oppressed, but if I'm going to ask, there has to be a possibility. And only Jesus can make that possible. John Perkins, longtime pastor and advocate for racial reconciliation, who wrote an excellent book called One Blood. After you read Advocates, which is a quick read and a deep read, but a quick read, read One Blood, which is a quick read and a deep read. And he's an African-American man who was beaten in Mississippi and yet learned to forgive through the love of Christ. 
He said, the problem of reconciliation in our country, in our churches, is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. This is a God-sized problem. It's one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. It requires the quality of love that only our Savior can provide, and it requires that we make some uncomfortable confessions. Those uncomfortable confessions, that brokenness and lament, that humility, are the second part that only the church has the equipment to really do. Only the gospel gives us the real equipment for humble brokenness and lament. Anytime you go to fix your house, you have to figure out how bad the problem is before you can figure out how much damage you're going to have to do to, pick, to fix it. There's a bunch of toys everywhere. That's not a bunch of damage you have to do. You just have to pick them up and put them away. But if you have a plumbing issue, you may have to cut up some pipes and replace some fixtures to think, make things better. If you have a mold problem, you may have to pull out huge sections of drywall or flooring. And yet some problems go even further. Talked to my neighbor this week. He was telling me about a house he had looked at downtown that had a crack from the top of the roof to the bottom of the foundation. So much so that when you walked in, you could set a pencil on either side of the crack and it would roll all the way to the other side of the room. <laughs> if you want to fix that house, you have to demolish that house. If you're going to admit that you're wrong, you have to be willing to admit that part of you has to be pulled out. It has to be replaced. It even has to be demolished. Most people, most of the time, shrink their sins down because how can you replace so much of yourself and still be you? That's not the position of the Christian. It says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. When I step into the door of Christianity, I admit that I need to be made new, that the old has to pass away totally, and the new come. That means that I can lament. I can look at my sins and weep rather than belittle my sins. James 4, 8 and 9 says, Draw near to God. He's going to draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, those verses in James are part of the New Testament, written to the New Testament community, people who have been forgiven and accepted by Jesus Christ. And we are commanded to that level of lamentation. When our black brothers and sisters, our Hispanic brothers and sisters accuse us of hate or double standards and violence, we don't have to stand up and defend ourselves. We can honestly admit and genuinely weep. That's going to be necessary. There's no way around it, yet in Jesus there's no reason to avoid it. So we can forgive, we can lament, and it's only the Christian has the real equipment for unity. The way that our country and our races and our relationships can be put back together, the way that we get from where we are in this miserable middle to Revelation is to do what he did by reconciling.
the last part of that passage again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Rachel and I listened to an African-American comedy writer recently, and she had sort of taken over the monologue part of a nighttime comedy show to tell stories of where she had been harassed by police, and she had never been violently harassed, but it wasn't the kind of experience with a police officer that most of us would probably go through. And she's telling a story, and she finishes and says, I know that we normally do jokes during this part of the show, and if you want us to go back to doing jokes and stop telling these bummer stories, do something about it. Segment ends. Not only am I struck by the story and what she's saying, I'm also struck by the lack of possible solution. Because do something about it opens up a lot of different possibilities. That's part of the problem with a lot of this outrage is that there's not a constructive outlet. Because what do you do? Well, Christ does have a plan. We have a crystal clear goal and bullet points to get there. We can only move forward by unifying people to people by reconciling those people to God. Revelation 7 worked because all of those countless multitudes were standing together before God. So now I'm going to try to do the same thing. My job is to do exactly what I see described at the beginning of this sermon when I talked about how we reach across. I have a limited perspective, but because I can become aware of the other, I can reach across in love to reconcile. It's my job to know what it's like for my wife to be a woman in the world. It's my job to know what it's like for a person living in Utah without God. It's my job to look outside of myself and to find what it's like to live as a black person in America or a police officer in America. And as I reach across in love, I'll find all kinds of stuff that needs to be addressed. I'm going to find out that I've sinned. I'm going to find out that I've benefited from the sins of others. I'm going to find some things to weep over in my brother's experience that haven't affected me at all. I'm going to find some actions that I can take to make that person's life better and the future brighter. I'm going to find opportunity to bring them to Jesus. Evangelism is a clinical word for what we're called to do. What we're really called to do is to reach across everyone's experiences and to bring those experiences into us. Feel their pain, feel their fears, experience those things through love, then bring them to the place, the only place where they can find forgiveness and humility and unity and healing. So what do we do? Well, you need to commit yourself to this until you see it. That's what we mean by awareness. I hope I don't have to say this, but let me just say it so it's on record. Racism is a sin. Don't just say that. Say that and then commit to finding it in your heart and rooting it out. Christian gospel says that you are a sinner. So if racism is a sin, you probably have it. 
You can't just say, because I'm not at that rally or because I didn't say that thing or post that way, that this has no purchase in my heart. Of course it does. You're a sinner. <laughs> we look hard enough, and Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. He found murder, adultery, lying, stealing, every one of the Ten Commandments in your heart. Broken. You need to seek to see this stuff until you really can see it. You need to commit to fast until you can feel it. What is fasting? Uh, the principle is not difficult. You just stop. You stop eating. You stop uh, drinking certain things. You stop something in order to something. What? Well, I wrote a sentence and it rhymes. So when we fast, we use our hunger to wake up our spiritual slumber. Kind of rhymes. When we fast, we use our hunger to wake up our spiritual slumber. You grasp a natural physical appetite and you force it the other way around to create a real spiritual appetite. I should feel more than I do. So I'm going to use something that I really do feel, hunger, every day, all the time, and I'm going to force it to make me feel spiritually strong. And Biblically, we're not supposed to talk about how we do it or when we do it or whatever. That's why David's being very like, oh, you know, our family's going to fast. He's not telling you exactly what he's doing, how he's doing, because Scripture commands it. But stop eating until you feel it, until you wake up. Then commit to passionately pray until God fixes it. A great set of action statements that we can be doing in the midst of all of this was written by a guy uh, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina. He said, we'll continue to fight the good fight. How? Here's some suggestions. Pray daily for the equality for all. We talked last week about the prayers that we have for our leaders, that we might live quiet lives, dignified. That word dignified is right there, equality for all. Ask the Lord to show you ways we perpetuate or tolerate racist ideologies. It's got to be happening. Think well concerning systems in society where persons of color currently have little or no voice. 